0: My dad um, loved, uh, I think it's 132nd ratio kind of cars, those like die-cast metal cars. Um, If you come to my office at all, you'll see a a number of them up on the top shelf, um, some that are a little bit bigger down on another shelf, but he had hundreds of them, right? Just hundreds of them. And when uh, part of the reason why he had those was because he especially loved cars from the 40s and 50s. And uh, it was because partially he just loved cars, but partially because he was remembering like a day in the past that was a better day um, in his memory. He, he loved those days in the past. He would also sit in the basement and he had a, he had a turntable and he had hundreds, I think there was over 2,000 uh, LPs. Uh, so vinyls, he would just sit down there and just listen to vinyls from, from, uh, from the 40s and 50s again. And it just took him back to a time that was better, a time that he, better for him. He, he just had much happier memories than the last years of his life. There's something about the past that attracts us. We all, we all could look back and find some, something we long for that's now no longer there. Um, deep in our hearts and desires to repeat those joyful experiences there's a there's a hope of recapturing the thrill that was once there um, You remember growing up you you maybe your thanksgiving meal is is filled with things that your mom made or your grandmother made or there's just things from the past that we latch on to and we continue to walk with them through our traditions and whatnot. We celebrate anniversaries. We celebrate birthdays, Uh, not just because they're milestones, ways to celebrate people, but because they bring back memories of days past when your 18-year-old was one or was two and there were just some sweet moments of those days we recall and we look through. We know that they were tough days. We know that they weren't the easiest days. We know some of them were very, very difficult days. But there's something about the past that we long for. Um, the kind of the good old days. The younger, younger you are, the, the more there's a chance that you won't feel that. But the older you get, there's, there's more of a chance that you you tend to forget or at least you forget the by God's grace, you might forget some of the things from the past that were not good. When you look forward to the things, you, 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 you wish that you could enjoy some of the things that now you don't enjoy. I don't know if any of that makes sense. Hopefully, hopefully that makes sense. It's just like we long for something that we had in the past, that we don't have today, and we just kind of sit in it, and we get sad about it. We, we want to relive those things. Deep within our human memory, and, and I don't think we recognize this, but deep within our human fabric, our psyche, um, our very being is a picture, a, a knowledge of something that no longer exists, something that is just deep within something we long for and we don't actually know entirely what it is. We, we yearn for it. And, and and what it is, what uh, part of the point I want to make this morning is that is that this yearning that we have is is the Garden of Eden. Now that's a big jump from vinyls and and cars and 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 w- kids whatever to the Garden of Eden. But deep within our very soul, in the fabric of our humanity, we have this longing for the Garden of Eden, where where peace and rest truly did, uh, truly was experienced. A deep, the, the deepest rest you would ever find, the most satisfying existence you might ever imagine. Not one human being, no matter if you, it doesn't matter if you're born again or not, it's deep within the human experience, our experience. Because it cannot be forgotten, because this memory is so deep within, we long to experience it once again. We're all looking for it somewhere. We look for peace, we look for rest, we look for contentment, we look for fulfillment, we look for peace within, we look for peace without, peace in stressful situations, peace in school, peace at work, peace between people of different color, peace between countries, peace between religions, peace in families, every single one of us, all of humanity, among all the nations, there is no nation that is exempt from this, it is in the fabric of humanity itself, each of us are looking for a return to Eden. At the very core, you not only want hope, but you desire peace. And what comes with peace is rest. Deep, deep rest. And so do your coworkers, and so do your neighbors, and so does your crazy uncle. You may be sitting here this morning and your week has been anything but peaceful. Things didn't go well at work, you're dealing with a health issue, difficult financial concerns, or maybe you're struggling in your marriage, or having difficulty in parenting, or, or wrestling with the difficulties and hard decisions that come from your parents entering into the later years. Perhaps any number of recent events in society or around the world have you upset and anxious about tomorrow and about today, and, and so you're not at peace. And certainly rest is fleeting. The the list of things that tempt us to anxiety and the absence of peace and rest in our lives are rather long, aren't they? If I were to have you sit down and just kind of write out things that cause you anxiety, the list would probably be, if you were honest with yourself, would be long. There's a lot of concern, a lot of anxiety. Advent reminds us. Uh, It has at least um, the semblance of reminding us. By way of celebrating, we could get lost in the, the stuff, but, we, but Advent itself reminds us of this. That God has promised and provided not just temporal peace, but eternal peace and rest through the King, Christ Jesus alone. That God has promised and he's provided not just temporal peace, the one kind of peace that we all think you know, the world kind of longs for, but eternal peace. I mean, peace today and eternal peace and rest through Christ the King alone. You and I can, this very day, live in the peace of Emmanuel, that we can truly live in the peace of God with us, peace with God and peace with one another, and peace in this world, peace today and peace for tomorrow, peace for eternity. This is the promise of Scripture. You want peace? You don't have to go anywhere else to find it. You find it right here in Christ alone. This is the promise of the text that we come to today. And to help us understand the text, I want to do something a bit different this morning, and that is not like make a number of points through it, we could do that, but what I would like to do is take this, take this whole story and, and this be one of the pieces of the story, but I want to walk you through a story because, because there's one story in this scripture. There, there are many, many stories in these, bo- in these books, in this one book that's made up of many books written by many different people throughout the centuries or throughout the years, and, and yet there is one overarching narrative. Do you, do you know what that one overarching narrative is and how Advent, what we celebrate, fits into that story? And then where does peace come from in that one story? The Bible, again, one story. Hundreds of years, uh, written by many different authors, a myriad of different countries, cities, even continents, there, there clearly emerges one story. The story is about a kingdom. This kingdom is the kingdom of God, where, where God is king, and as such rules and extends peace to all those who are under his gracious rule. And let me just say, we have to start here in God's, in God's world, in God's kingdom, because if, if God is not the king of the kingdom, then there is no peace. There will be no peace. Peace. But God is the ruler of the world. He created the world. This is, this is who he is. If we don't start at that foundation, then we're, we're, we're messed up. We're, 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 we're going to be out of peace, there's, and there's no rest. And we'll be s- scrambling for all sorts of things to give us peace, and they'll give us peace for a moment and then not give us peace. And we'll find rest for a little bit, or we'll take drugs to find rest for a little bit, and then we're not at peace again. In the first two chapters of the Bible, as we, we've been recently in these in these passages, but we see this kingdom patterned in creation. God as ruler and king, and everything else is created. And what we see from the very beginning is God is creator and we are the created. We, we are not the creator. Our, our, all of our hope rests in Him. All of our life comes from Him. So where do we get rest? Well, we look elsewhere for it. It's wrong? We, we look for it in God alone that he's the starting place God has the prerogative to rule and because who we are as the creature we are made to live for him and not just live for him but as our sermon titles are saying live kind of in him live in the light of Emmanuel live in the peace of Emmanuel we are called we are we're made to find our existence find our joy find our peace find our hope find our life in the light of God unapproachable light. And though we never lacked anything um, so as to need us or the rest of creation in any way, he invites us into fellowship with him. In these first two chapters, we see man in harmonious relations with God. A very real, intimate peace with God was mankind's experience, something that was called shalom. Shalom. Uh, uh, tranquility. You ever you ever been tranquil? <laughs> Not tranquilized, but you understand like tranquilized, what that's getting at? It's like super chill. A very real, intimate peace. The absence of agitation. The absence of discord. Fullness meaning, rest, harmony. Man is being personally cared for by God in the Garden of Eden. Can you imagine? There's not been sin yet. So the fellowship is unbelievably sweet. They're, They're God's people in God's place and they experience shalom, peace and rest in the presence of their creator. It doesn't stay that way. We know that. We've considered recently, again, in Genesis 3 through 11, and all the joy and peace and rest that is in the Garden of Eden is lost. Sin enters the world. The created rejects the good, holy, just, righteous rule of the Creator. They're they're still God's people in God's place, but instead of entrusting themselves to Him and finding their rest in Him, they resist Him. They reject Him. Um, And the results of sin are immediate. And they're destructive, and they're pervasive. Shame, all of a sudden, is on. Guilt is felt. Sinful desire, hard work that is anything but restful. Divine alienation. Paradise was lost. Shalom, peace and rest, and found in a relationship with God, was lost. Suffering and death entered the world. Everything we experience today, those things that entered the world, for the first time, and we see in those early chapters that the evil of mankind that grew exponentially, as we've seen, like how it's just spread so, so ridiculously to where God says, "I, I, I gotta flood, I gotta flood the world," or, or, or I need to s- split up the people, the Tower of Babel. This is judgment. In the garden, judgment in the flood, judgment at Babel, where we see that God will not suffer a rebellion against him, and that resulted in God scattering mankind throughout the whole earth. Yet, in the midst of evil, God preserves the people for himself. We've seen this as well. Genesis 3, we see that there's a hostility between God and evil that, and promises the, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the evil. And so we begin to look for the one from Genesis 3 on, Someone who will crush the head of the serpent and it begins with a man named Seth as you might remember in Genesis 5 and the line continues to Noah and God preserves him and then follows the line through Noah's son Shem and the line continues throughout the rest of the Old Testament and you can read the specific line in Luke chapter 3. It's in Genesis where we begin to hear about the promise of a king to rule over them. In the rest of Genesis, we read about the hope of the kingdom and restored peace, restored shalom through promises that God made that he will continue to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever, uh, to dwell with and give peace to. We, we move quickly now from Exodus through 2 through, uh, through Chronicles where we see that the kingdom comes in parts. God, God delivers his people from Egypt. He raises up Moses and what happens is, is no great accomplishment by the nation it's, uh, or by the wisdom of its leaders, it's the accomplishment of Almighty God alone. He's the one who does it. He's faithful. He's the promise-keeping Almighty God out of sheer grace to a people that he has claimed as his own. This is, this is all about God. This is not necessarily about man first and foremost. It's about God necessarily first and foremost. It's in Egypt where we see that his people are protected from the penalty of death through the blood of a spotless lamb to serve as a substitution for them. It's in the exodus of God's people where we see them freed from bondage as they crossed over the Red Sea and their captors were destroyed. And we see God's activity all the way through. God redeeming a people to dwell with forever to experience peace and to know deliverance and to know rest. It's in these chapters and books where we see God's plan of redemption and mankind's hope for peace is to be carried out via one nation in particular in that day. And that is God's people, Israel. Proper. They are given God's law, and they're given God's presence in the tabernacle. God chose uh, chose to dwell in their midst, and He promises to be with them wherever they go. And yet, His presence has to be mediated by priests, and is not fully accessible to everyone. In fact, we, um, Amanda, where's Amanda? Uh, right there. Thank you for doing that. If you, if you haven't, go into the prayer room after the service. Take a look at the uh, what used to be a, a kind of a whitewashed Jesus uh, there and, and what we see now is like um, this bright light that Amanda uh, drew, uh, painted. A bright light that's behind cur- a curtain that's been split in two which speaks about God's presence with us. Um, thank you for doing that. God's people um, experienced shalom for a time in those days, back in those days. But then man rebelled against God again and began to follow other gods. And for holy God to dwell with an unholy people, there had to be a sacrifice to end that rebellion. We, 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 we know this if we've grown up in the church at all. And so God again provides a way for, uh, for them to know him, to experience his oneness and relationship with him, to, to know peace with God and peace with one another, and even as those who act rebelliously toward the one who created him. So so the one who created us, we reject. God, still in love and mercy, makes a way for us to find peace with him. He institutes a sacrificial system where animals and other things are continually sacrificed daily and yearly so that God's people can be clean and made holy, set apart for him. And then they were promised an inheritance, a land in particular that was intended to provide rest and security and protection and a place for God to dwell among his people where they would again experience shalom. That was the, that was the, that was the trajectory and Pastor Cale preached on some of that just a few weeks back. But again, mankind forfeits the inheritance by their unbelief. We see that in the book of Numbers, the promised inheritance that is only gained by God's power as Joshua enters the promised land and the inheritance is maintained by their faithfulness to the covenant that God made with them. The, The book of Judges continues, shows Israel rebelling again and again and again against the covenant of God. God sends judgment in the form of oppression. And then upon His people's cries of repentance. He sends judges, people to lead them to victory over the nations who again are ruled by the enemies of God. But at the end of Judges, we see what's deep in the heart of people. There's still no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. But then the people of Israel longed for someone to lead them. Let's give us somebody to lead us like the nations have. God had said in Deuteronomy that when they set a king over them, he must be a servant devoted to God's law, mediating the reign of God over Israel, and a man whom God designates. But Israel rejected that plan, and they looked for a tall guy, strong man, a warrior kind of guy who started with cowardice and ended with utter rebellion against God himself. And finally, the story continues where we get get to a man whom God chooses, the son of Jesse. David. God makes a covenant with David. The covenant stated that a descendant of David will occupy his throne forever, the throne of David forever. David wasn't to be the, the one who was going to crush the serpent's head but, but somewhat, and, and give people peace, give his people peace, but he was going to bring that king who would be the serpent crusher through the line of David somehow in the future and then we read of the glory days of israel with solomon and building a temple and the glory of god residing there and and bringing shalom to some extent deep peace in god's presence to his people the story continues and we read of king after king most of them evil Abandoning the peace that God gives and rebelling by following other gods made of wood and stone. And so what God does after, they, after the kingdom splits, Israel and Judah split. There's the northern kingdom and the south kingdom. The northern kingdom goes into captivity and, in, in 722. And then Babylon comes and takes Judah in 586 BC. People of God were thrust into deep darkness. As we saw last week. And that darkness wasn't only hopelessness, but there was no rest, no peace. So there had been considerable sin and rebellion up to this point in the nation of Israel, and God had handed his people over to disastrous consequences for that rebellion. And God did not allow that, though, to be the final word, although it was an intense word of judgment. As we spoke of last week, he will one day bring a true descendant of the house of Jesse to rule over his people, the the light of the world, John 1, 1. And this king will be filled with the spirit of God and, and rule with fairness and justice and will bring about true shalom. So, so here we are at our text. Isaiah says that out of the root, the stump of Jesse, father of David, will come a branch that will bear fruit. This is not one who will merely be one more descendant of the royal line that is now so thoroughly tarnished. Rather, it will be one who springs from the very roots of that Davidic kingly dynasty. It would be the Messiah who jumps out in this way. The picture that we might envision here is a forest that's been all cut down, burned to a crisp, and you got this one stump remaining that's alive. And out of that stump comes a sprig and a branch. And this branch is Christ. It resides fast and foremost in the, in the, in the, the devastated landscape because God Is faithful to his promises. The descendant of Jesse will rule with a different spirit than that which was characterized too many of the line of kings we read of in the Old Testament, so we read in our text that this king will rule with the spirit of the Lord. This is who Israel knew to be the one, the Messiah, the the Christ, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. He would not rule in power and motivation of the fallen human spirit as all the rest, but by the life and breath of God himself. And as a result, the reign would be characterized by wisdom and understanding and counsel and power and, and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. All things were lacking in the people of God. This is how the king that was coming, this, this, this branch coming out of the stump of Jesse, would rule. This king would have an understanding that doesn't come from intellectual prowess and learning, but springs from an experiential knowledge of the one who is true. Most of the kings before did not care about pleasing God, did not care about obeying God, did not care about fearing God. They were too concerned for themselves. They were too concerned about their own power. But this ruler, this king that was coming, this this branch coming out of the root of Jesse, the stump of Jesse, this ruler is gonna be different. Verses three through five in our text, we see that he will not judge or decide on what his eyes see or what his ears hear, but he will judge with what is right according to the one who is right, that is God. He will judge with righteousness. The, The justice he gives is based on the rules that the creator gave for those who are the created, not rules made up by man, but but. But a command from God to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself and the Ten Commandments and the moral law of God. How does he do that? How does he walk in this way? Well, because righteousness and faithfulness as spoken of in verse five will be at the very core of this king's existence. No king has been like this ever. But this king will be. Unlike every other king in Israel's history, this king can be trusted and will have utter authority to accomplish Everything he desires. And the result of the reign of this king, of all the kings of the people of God, is shalom. It's it's peace. Verses 6 through 9 show us in stark detail the kind of peace that's experienced. You see the wolves and leopards and lions and bears are together with lambs, goats, calves, and cows. The, 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 The predator and the prey together at rest in verse 9, or we, all, we also see that, that the, a child playing over the hole of a snake's den, and the child's safe. We see in verse 9 that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and it's not just simply an intellectual knowledge, it's not like a knowledge of God, but, but a true knowledge, an experiential knowledge of God. This is the way the Hebrews understood knowledge, based on experience, based on feltness, his presence and really knowing him and being known by him. When the prophet speaks in this manner, he isn't primarily speaking about them knowing about the Lord, uh, but of them having a close and intimate relationship with him. The Messiah will, in fact, make it possible for all people to know God intimately. And as we saw back in the Garden of Eden, this intimate experiential knowledge of God, living in his presence, brings shalom. It did then and it does today in Christ's presence with him with us. Peace for all God's people. And so throughout the rest of the Old Testament, prophet after prophet points to this coming king who will be called Prince of Peace. Israel waited with eager expectation of this king and of the peace that he promised they waited and they waited and they waited and hundreds of years passed. And what our text said last week was that his people missed him. Luke, Luke tells us in his gospel of what the angel told Mary. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. There's no other king that's ever existed like this king, like Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one we worship, the one that we celebrate this Christmas, the the one that we celebrate every single Sunday, the one that we live for each and every day. This is the king, the Christ, the serpent crusher, the king of kings, the prince of peace, the, the one who is come and brought the kingdom. Mark 1.15, Jesus said, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The story of God's kingdom continues and this kingdom is now present and Jesus is the king of this kingdom presently. This king, this king who is clothed in, in righteousness and faithfulness who will reign forever and ever, he died for the sins of his people so that if they trust in him, they would be forgiven, brought back into a right relationship with God and given peace given shalom, peace with with God primarily. Yet this king rose from the dead and he has been given all authority in heaven and earth so that at at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, he is king, he is ruler, savior. The peace that the Israelites waited for and missed in Jesus Messiah, we, we look back on. And if we place our trust in him, we can know him. Like I spoke of last week. To all who received him, those who believed in his name, they have been given the right to become children of God. This is the truth. So no matter what the world or the devil or our flesh throws at throws at us, we can, we can experience in Christ the nearness of God, the, the rest, uh, shalom, peace. Each and every one of you, every single one of you is looking for the peace that Jesus alone can give. You lack peace, don't you? Your neighbors lack peace. Jesus is the only one, truth about Jesus is the only one who will give you what you're looking for. Speaking to myself as well. Jesus himself said in the world, in this world, you will have tribulation. Tribulation. So even for those whom he died for, not all will be peaceful, will it? We, we struggle, we, we wrestle. Um, we wrestle with sin, we wrestle not even sometimes with our own flesh, we wrestle against the enemy of our faith. Many of us are not at peace, though we are children of the King. Though we've been forgiven and are loved and chosen, we, like Peter, look to the waves around us and we begin to worry and we begin to be anxious and we lose our peace and we're filled with anxiety and we feel as though we're sinking. And, and feeling like you're sinking is a, is a dreadfully terrible situation. Helpless. Usually when you're sinking you've been trying to stay afloat and you get tired, you get tired, you get tired and the water starts to come up and you're We've all seen movies that have something like that where the water's coming up to their nose and trying to take that last breath. Our text reminds the Israelites and it reminds us this morning that the story of the kingdom has not reached its consummation. We proclaim the kingdom of God as we live for and speak of the gospel, but the kingdom is still to be perfected. We experience peace with God through trusting in the person and finished work of Jesus, the Messiah, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, where our text speaks of a day that has not yet come. Partially has come, but it has not come in its fullness. We still wait. We wait with eager expectation of the day of the Lord when he comes again to judge and those who have trusted in him as their king will be accepted by him and welcomed into his presence with great joy and to experience peace, to experience shalom, utter contentment where the sorrows and struggles and pains of this life will be forgotten and the overwhelming rest and contentment and peace and joy that we experience in the presence of God forever and ever. It's hard to imagine it's hard to imagine because we seldom experience this here. We have moments where we are set afire. We, we talk about revival or renewal, and that's what's happening in us. We get a fresh vision of God, and we are set aflame for him, and we are at rest, and it's like the world could be against us. The world is against us. The world could be against us, and all is well. Oh, but that, that peace and joy is often fleeting. his kingdom will finally be consummated and, and where this story um, doesn't come to a close, but actually just truly begins. How, how do we wait well? I'm going to say one more thing. We, we, can wait. we can wait with assurance that Jesus is going to come back because he came the first time. He came the first time, and he declared himself that he would come back. And so when we doubt that, what we're we're doubting is the very word of Christ Jesus himself and the promises of God. May we not doubt that. How is it we can wait well? Apostle Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The Apostle Paul tells us not to stop everything and wait for Jesus to come back on some hill or whatever, but to be active, to live lives of sobriety, live lives of self-control. We are to pursue holiness, putting on the armor of faith, putting on the the armor of hope and love. And so following God's word, trusting in God's word, reading God's word and saying, Lord, how, how can I walk in your ways? Help me to trust you. Help my unbelief. Paul wants us to grow into the fullness of God's image, reflecting the divine character in our thoughts and in our actions, and he's given us the Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts to cause us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and to work in us um, things that cause us to glorify God in our body and in our mind and in our soul in the way that we speak and the way that we act and the way that we listen and the way that we look and all of that. Perhaps you're familiar, I'm sure you're familiar with John Lennon's song, Imagine. Um, he wrote of a kind of peace by imagining there's no heaven and no religion. And it's kind of somewhat understandable. You look at history and you think, man, religion's been problematic. Not just religion, but Christianity throughout history has been problematic. When it's become more, like less about Christ and... And less about the gospel and, and really about everything else. About what we see, about how to affect governments and all this. God, God has specifically given us one job to do as the church, and that is to proclaim his glory among the nations. And throughout the years, um, the church, Christianity, whether true or not, is debatable. Um, has caused significant problems. And of course, John Lennon's heart would not be, uh, he may or may not even known about the Crusades or whatnot, but the reality is his heart was at enmity with God also. And so of course, peace with God was not a thing even to be looked for. He, He just wanted to find peace. He was looking for the same thing you're looking for and I'm looking for. He's looking for the same thing your family is looking for. He's looking for the same thing that, our government is looking for. And people around the world. In Turkey and wherever. It's in the true religion. That's centered on King Jesus. And his kingship. That tells us of the new citizenship. We have in heaven. With a, a new king to follow and trust. Amid the world that we live in. And are meant to reflect the glory of God. And the hope that we have of the full salvation. In him. And full shalom that we can experience. In heaven partial shalom now and full shalom then. In the presence of Emmanuel, God with us, where we don't have to imagine peace, we can experience peace for this day and for the myriad of struggles we face now, and as we set our eyes on the utter peace and rest, we will know at Christ's second advent because, again, he came once, and he said he was coming back, and he was going to come back to bring us to him that we might find shalom, utter utter satisfaction and contentment. Tranquility with God in his presence. This this is the primary message we have as the church. It's it's Christ alone where our messy culture will find peace. Not Not in just altered moralities, but in Christ crucified. So that's the message we are about. The message of Christ Jesus being the one primary story that is on our lips as we wake to a new day and interact with our families and as we interact with our neighbors and as we interact with the coworkers. May may this story be at the center of all we do and all we say, how we live. So we'll speak about other things as long as we're not at peace in this situation and we're looking for peace in this situation. We're looking for peace in, horizontally, when God's saying, lift up your eyes, where does your help come from? Right, it comes from you, King Jesus. May we live with our eyes truly set on the end of the written story in God's Word. It's a a place where you and I can live today in the peace of Emmanuel. We truly can. you're, You're without peace to whatever level. Whatever level that is, you can experience the peace that God brings in Emmanuel, in trusting in Jesus, as we realize that the story of our lives is really just the prologue to the eternal story that we enter into when Jesus comes in glory at his second advent. We we read in the second to last chapter of Revelation this... This is, this is truth, this is God's word, this is authoritative, and it's the end of the story, which again is the beginning of the bigger story, the eternal story. He saw a new heaven and a new earth, it says, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, that is this one, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things, they're done. They're passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I, not, not, not anybody else, I am making all things new. And so he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha, and I'm the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Are you thirsty this morning? Yes, you're thirsty. You might not feel it, you might not see it, but you are clamoring for something to drink. Rest, peace, and your neighbors are as well. And we have the solution Christ Jesus, him crucified, him risen to new life, him ascended to the throne where he will one day return. The one who conquers will have this heritage and that will be his God and he will be my son. God himself has promised and provided not just temporal peace, but eternal peace and rest through King Jesus alone. Far more than any nostalgic feeling of yesteryear is the promise of peace in the present and bright hope and peace for the rest of the future in Christ. One song that we've sung in the past says it this way. When Christ, our life, appears, our hope will be complete. Our longings finally rest as we fall at his feet. When Jesus comes to reign, restoring everything, our tears will turn to tides of praises to our king. When Christ, our life, appears, the curse will be undone. All wickedness will end as mercy overcomes. The Savior will renew what sin had torn apart. His light will drive the shadows from our weary hearts. We're longing for the day when we'll see Christ our Savior. That's how the chorus goes. Third verse says this When Christ our life appears, these trials that weighed us down will fade. I know that there are people in this sanctuary and on live stream, who are so weighed down by sorrows. The Lord Jesus knows the depth of the sorrow. They will fade and fall away as King Jesus receives our crowns. Death, it'll disappear. Its rule and reign destroyed beneath the weight of glory and eternal joy. We're longing, aren't we? We're longing for that day when we'll see Christ our Savior. We'll behold the glory of our King forever. Christ our Savior. Faith will turn to sight when Christ our life appears. Today we look through a window kind of that's all messy and muddy, but we are seeing Christ. We look to Christ and we can find rest in Him. But then in that day, Oh, the, the tears that will be wiped away from our eyes and we'll see clearly for the first time. And we know this to be true because Jesus came the first time. And he promised this to be true and we can rest in him. So Jesus said himself, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? It's the words of Jesus Christ. Not a swear word, the person, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the one who has existed for all the days of eternity, the one we spoke of last week, the light and life of men. The the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word, the word that was with God and the word was God, this one is the one who is going and preparing a place for us, and I will come again, he says, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know, way, you, and, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said these words, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. In other words, in our context this morning, no one can experience rest. No one can experience peace, the peace that they're longing for apart coming through Christ. We can live today and live for eternity in the presence of the King for whom we were made. May each of us place our hope in Christ Jesus this morning that we would know the peace and the rest that is provided by God through Christ alone. And may this word be on our tongues as we interact with the culture.